All right, chapter 49. We're in chapter 49 this morning. We're getting close, y'all. So after today, just, what, three more chapters? 50, 51, 52? Um, so chapter 49 um, is just about the end of the oracles of the nations. The only one after this one is the one on Babylon. So this chapter, um, whereas last chapter was a pretty long one, 47 verses on just one nation, on Moab, or Moab, however you want to say it. Um, this one covers, um, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, five different nations, if you will, nation states, all into one. And, you know, a couple of them, Ammon and Edom, are, are, have a rich history with Israel. So, you know, again, that kind of brings out why was the one on Moab, 47 verses, and then we just have two sections in one chapter on Ammon and Edom. The Lord knows. But this chapter does uh, cover several short oracles on these neighboring areas. Ammon, uh, so the Ammonites, Edom, Damascus, the Arab tribes of uh, Kedar and Hazor, and Elam, or Elam. Uh, now, I want to just bring your attention to these maps real quick. No, map number 78. Uh, it, it's, it's not, I don't love it. I'll put it that way. I don't love it because you really, it doesn't zoom in and really give you cities. But it does, again, give, remind you of the area of some of these neighboring uh, nations, particularly Ammon and Edom. And then the second map, number 116, uh, this one's necessary because, you know, the last nation that I mentioned here, Elam, uh, you go, where, where's Elam? Well, it's, it's way over there by the, the top of the Persian Gulf. And so we'll, you'll hear more about Elam um, as we go into study today. But, uh, you know, these are just for reference because we don't know this area, let alone in an ancient context. All right, so... The first of these oracles, judgments, is on Ammon. And what we'll see here, and really in, and as we go through each of these nations, language is going to sound familiar. Um, it's repetitive in some ways in terms of, um, you know, you'll see terror on every side, or it's a horror, you know, they will hiss at them. Um, uh, familiar language as we walk through these nations, um, as judgment comes on. Again, the idea is we're, we're keeping in the back of our mind here that God is sovereign over all the nations. And this is something the people of God at the time needed to hear. Yes, Judah was going to be judged. There was no getting around that. God is a God of justice. These other nations will be judged as well. So, um, what we read this morning here on this first part on Ammon, it reflects really a, a, a familiar and similar political switch situation that we read about last week on Moab. Well, Israel's relations, Ju Judah's relations as well, right? The North and South Kingdoms. Their relations with Ammon, the Ammonites, was generally unfriendly. You might recall that in your own Bible reading. It was generally unfriendly. In the days of the Exodus, 
course, we know the history goes back further than that. But in the days of the Exodus, Ammon was bypassed. You know, they wanted to come through and use, you know, can we buy water? Can we do this? No, you can't do that. Ammon was bypassed. Um, Moab, just like Moab and Edom, were bypassed. They weren't conquered by the Israelites. God wouldn't have them do that. Only the Amorite kingdoms of Sion and Og uh, were taken over. But after this time, you know, after that exodus, there was sporadic war between Israel and Ammon. Right? Like I've done before with the Moabites, I want to go a little, give a little bit of background here on the Ammonites. Um, so we know that they descend from Lot, as do the Moabites. Uh, therefore, they are distant relatives with Israel. Second cousins, twice removed. I guess. Um, so, what are some of the histories that we can read about in the Judges and First and Second Kings, and, the, and therefore Jephthah? Um, back in the uh, days of the Judges, he was called upon to give relief to the people by the Lord, and he defeated the Ammonites. Back in Judges chapter eleven. Um, there was a guy named Nahash. Uh, he was a leader among the Ammonites. For a period of time, he gave King Saul trouble. And so he opposed Israel in that day, in Saul's day. Uh, David, King David, he sought peace with the Ammonites himself. You know, um, his servants were insulted by the Ammonites. Um, if you can recall that story where the king of Ammon dies, his son takes over, David sends some servants there to encourage them and console them in this time of grief, and they shave half their beards and put, you know, tear their skirts, you know, humiliate them, basically. Um, and that's not a good thing to do to King David, especially in his younger days. Um, and so despite the Aramean help that the Ammonites could muster for themselves, they were punished. They were punished. Solomon, King Solomon, he held them in check in his own day. Uh, Amos commented on uh, some of their cruel activities in the area of Gilead. That was around the 8th century B.C. time frame. So there's a lot of history that we have with the Ammonites. Really, not we, Israel. When it came time for the deportation of Israel... Um, in that Jordan area, the Transjordan area, like the Reubenites and the Gadites, uh, by the king of Assyria in the mid-8th century. Um, and then the, the subsequent collapse of Israel. Uh, this weakened state, and of course these peoples being deported, well, Am, uh, left a vacuum, and Am, the Ammonites came in and annexed part of that territory that belonged to Gad. Um, during the 7th century BC, Ammon, uh, Ammon was a prosperous, semi-autonomous nation. Um, they were prosperous, but they weren't completely independent. They were a vassal of Assyria during this time. Um, it's believed that the, the nation itself suffered from Arab invaders at times. Um, the same time they attacked Moab, we, it's understood they attacked parts of Ammon as well. 
but when later Assyria collapsed at the end of the seventh century, Ammon got to enjoy some brief independence once again. Um, but then there comes uh, the Chaldeans. Um, and with the advance of Nebuchadnezzar into Palestine, and then we see at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, um, it's believed that at that time Ammon was probably put under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar at some, to some extent, you know, probably becoming another vassal nation, vassal state. When Judah rebelled, later in the early 6th century, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he sent contingents there to punish Judah, contingents from the Arameans, from the Moabites, and from the Ammonites to try to subdue Judah. Um, and if you remember back in um, um, chapter 27 of Jeremiah, Ammon was one of those neighboring nations that were involved in this uh, attempted rebellion that Zedekiah secretly convened there in Jerusalem. So um, the Ammonite king, Ballas, he was implicated in the assassination of Gedaliah. You know, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about that, where um, Ishmael and his worthless fellows uh, tried to, uh, and did in fact, kill Gedaliah and tried to steal the people away when Johanan come in and um, intervened. Well, perhaps it's because of these rebellions, these acts, that Nebuchadnezzar, he eventually conducted his own, another campaign, uh, a campaign of payback against Ammon as well as Moab and Judah in around the time period of 582 B.C. We'll get to that again in chapter 52. Uh, after that, Ammon fell victim to more Arab invasions uh, that destroyed both Moab and Edom. And before the middle of the 6th century BC, Ammon really, at that point, ceased to exist as an independent nation. Now, we'll hear more, history tells more about the Ammonites or the Ammonite people later on, but they didn't exist really as a nation after that, just as Israel um, didn't exist as a, a sovereign, independent nation of them, their own um, after the exile. So they suffered as well. They suffered as well. All right, so let's go into our text. That was some background. Verses 1 through 6 in chapter 49 of Jeremiah. Concerning, concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons, has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry, O daughters of Rabbah, put on sackcloth. 
lament and run to and fro among the hedges, for Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O fatherless daughter, who trusted in her treasure, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. So, verse 6 offers some mercy there. Well, the land, again, occupied the Ammonites, normally um, comprised of, you know, with the boundaries, the north and south boundaries, they would be flexible at times, um, depending on what battles were going on, who was taken away, as I just mentioned about deportation of Gad, leaving room for the Ammonites to come in. Um, there were, you have your map there. You can kind of see where Ammon existed north of uh, Moab. Uh, and it also had the uh, Syrian desert as a border as well. So in some ways they were protected like Moab boasted in their protection. Um, probably in many ways they were similar in that. Well, verse 1 mentions Milcom. Milcom, it's the same guy as Molech. Uh, he was their, their false god. Uh, by the way, that name Milcom means the king, um, like Baal means the Lord. Um, verse 2 mentions Rabbah of the Ammonites. Rabbah was the capital of Ammon, uh, and it is to be, um, it's the same place where you'll find the, the capital of Jordan today, the city of Ammon. Um, verse 3 mentions Heshbon. Uh, Heshbon um, normally was under Moab's control. But as I mentioned, you know, the borders were flexible. They went back and forth. So they're normally under Moab's control, but probably at this time that was belonging to Ammon. Um, it mentions this city of Ai, which literally means city of ruin. It's not the same city um, in the Israelite territory. Um, no one, they're not really sure where the location of Ai existed in regards to the, to the area of Ammon. Verse 3, um, we see um, something familiar, um, like with Moab, where Chemosh, their false god, and the priests that served that false god were taken away, so goes Milcom. And the priests that serve that false god. So same thing with the Ammonites as with the Moabs there in terms of that visible picture for the nations to see that their gods were also conquered. Uh, finally, in verses 4 and 5, just like Moab, uh, these treasures that Ammon boasted in, that would become the catalyst of their downfall. Besides their own idolatry, um, uh, sinful idolatry, this, this pride that they displayed in their material things. Um, it talks about in verse 4, why do you boast of your valleys? Um, that's actually a, a bit of a challenge to interpret that I read, uh, learned about as I studied for this. Um, some translations says, why do you boast about your strength? So 
it could be that what the, the, the connotation here is boasting in their valleys, boasting in like Moab boasted in strategic location that offered protection in some way. So they, they thought they were safe, um, but again, God sought them out for their sin. And, uh, but again, as I mentioned in verse 6, like we saw with Egypt in the oracles, judgment against Egypt and Moab, there will be a restoration of fortunes for Ammon. Uh, in fact, later on, in Persian times, um, Tobiah is mentioned as a local governor of Ammon. You can read about that in Nehemiah. So there's, again, some presence there. Um, and there was a revival of Moabite uh, fortunes later, just like there um, uh, was a reversal of fortunes for uh, the, um, the Ammonites. Uh, in the second century B.C., the, the Tobiad family, the same family that descended from this, this governor, Tobiah, in the Persian times, um, they were still ruling um, into even the first century B.C., um, the Maccabeans fought against them. So there was a coming back to that area um, and a, a restoration uh, of some sorts. All right, so that is the judgment on Ammon. So let's go on to the judgment on Edom. The prophecy here reflects really the hatred that, and it, that's no... Um, I'm not using that word lightly. They truly did hate these guys. The hatred that the Jews felt toward the Edomites in the days following the fall of Judah. Um, they, they were uh, traitors in many ways, the Edomites, in terms of what loose fellowships they did have. Uh, so here I want to give a brief history on Edom as well. Um, now, of course, that we know that they descend from e Esau, uh, the brother of Jacob. Uh, there is a, a, a long opposition uh, between Judah and Edom back to the days of the Exodus as well. Um, but the people were forbidden to bring harm upon the Edomites. Read that, about that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Um, they were told this because, well, they were brothers. Uh, David, in his reign, he sought to bring them under his control. Uh, Solomon, uh, he had trouble with Hadad, who came from uh, Edom and tried to cause some trouble. And he fled to Egypt for his own safety. Um, in the, day, the days of King Jehoshaphat, uh, there was a Judean deputy serving in Edom. Um, and uh, there was a retaliatory war against Moab um, that the people of Edom supported Judah and Israel with at that time. Um, you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 3. Um, later, Edom, they did revolt in the days of the king Joram um, when Judah was attacked by both Israel and Aram. Uh, at that time, Edom broke free from Judah um, Later on, King Amaziah, he would defeat them in battle around the 8th century B.C. King Uzziah, uh, he would try to push his boundaries into the area of Edom 
Uh, Edom won back some of that territory at the time of King Ahaz. Um, and then later we would see Edom paying tribute to uh, the king of Assyria. And at that point, they were, became vassals, a vassal state of Assyria for uh, quite some time. So it was probably the Edomites that paid, also would, in the same way as vassals, paid tribute to Nebuchadnezzar after the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, they were also invited to that seditious secret meeting that um, Zedekiah did in Jer in. Jerusalem to oppose and maybe overthrow Babylon somehow. So they were involved in that. Um, when the time came for Nebuchadnezzar to really put the heat on Judah and attack them, Edom gave no assistance. Uh, in fact, it, they collaborated with the Babylonians. That's where the hatred really began. And then later, we saw the advent of the Arab groups, those neighboring uh, Arab peoples uh, would come from the east and uh, moved in to the land of area of Edom um, from south of Edom. They would come in and they would start to push uh, the people of Edom into the southern parts of Judah, even up to the point of uh, the north of Hebron. So they got pushed up pretty much far into the southern parts of Judah. That area where they, the Edomites were pushed into became known as Idumea. All right. I'll have more to mention about that later on this morning. Uh, by the 6th century, B.C. Edom was occupied completely by these Arab tribes and um, they just kind of squatted there. And so uh, they, their nationality was, came to, a, to an end around that time. So let's read these verses 7 through 22 on um, judgment on Edom. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive. And let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, If those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse. And all her cities shall become perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. 
Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. And when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, or as when Sodom and Gomorrah, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan of the, that the Lord has made against Edom and, that, and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall in that day, like the heart of a woman, in her birth pains. There's got to be something to the, the birth pains of, of women that it's mentioned so many times. I'm, I'll figure that out eventually, I guess. I don't know. Um, so verse 8, it's just walking through this. They're told to flee, uh, to turn back, to dwell in the depths. This dwelling in the depths. Friends, that's the same thing as telling them to hunker down because it's going to be quite a ride. Um, they are going to be devastated. It talks about this, this city of Dedan in verse 8. It's an oasis area. Um, it was just northwest of the, the, the Arabia. Um, and it could have been a part of Edom at this time, it's thought, but... Um, what we see in verses 9 through 11 really stand out. Uh, there's this very vivid illustration that's given to us of these grape gatherers. Uh, these, these where you would see men picking grapes. Well, they would generally leave some gleanings. Why would they do that? Um, sometimes it was before out of, uh, it was intentional for others to come by and take the gleanings. Sometimes it was just quicker to get the job done. Who knows? But they would generally leave some gleanings. And then it even talks about thieves, at least honest thieves, I suppose, uh, who would raid the crop but only take what they need. But then the Lord says, you know, unlike these two scenarios where grape gatherers leave some gleanings and thieves only take what they need, I'm going to strip you bare, Edom. The Lord is going to strip them bare and destroy his offspring, his kinsmen, his neighbors. 
Verse 13, for I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a waste and a curse. This was the chief city. Uh, it was the capital of Edom. Referring to Basra is like referring to Edom, in a sense. Um, it was about 25 miles from the Dead Sea in that area. Again, I really wish these maps um, gave picture or little dots of where the cities were, but I tell you, it's, it's hard to find a good map. Um, verse 16, this, you know, refuge that they take, mentions them taking refuge in the clefts of the rock. Edom happened to be well known for their strongholds that were hidden away in the mountains. Um, from there, they had this position, this advantage of height. It's always good to be at the top of the hill than in the valley when it comes to a battle. Um, and, you know, this is something they boasted in. But they will become a horror. They will be hissed at, like Judah themselves would become. So we'll eat them. And the people would be shocked to see what would become of her. You know, hissing at them. It's like wagging the head at them. Like, man, did you see what happened to Edom? Verse 18. We have a comparison here with Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, you never want your land to be compared to what became of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, the comparison here with Sodom and Gomorrah is not necessarily how... Edom would be destroyed. We know that. It was, we didn't see these hailstones. We didn't see the, the, um, you know, the fire come down. It's not how they were destroyed, but the extent of their destruction. That's the comparison here with Sodom and Gomorrah. The extent of their destruction. Um, as we read on, verse 19, um, the attack that comes upon them is is being portrayed as how a lion attacks, as a lion would leave its lair and would stalk, you know, in the grasslands, and then very unexpectedly uh, attack its unsuspected prey. Just like that. It's over. That's how it will come upon Edom. Well, finally, Edom's ruin as a political identity was fulfilled about mid-6th century, um, 552 B.C. to be more exact, uh, when this, this leader um, came up and invaded them. His name was Nabonidus. He invaded Edom, um, and that's when their monarchy uh, be, came to an end. That was, again, around the mid-6th century. Uh, now, we don't find the name Nabonidus in the Bible, I'm sorry, I got him confused with uh, the Arab tribes. He doesn't come from the south. He doesn't come from the south. He comes upon them with, um, again, uh, from the Chaldeans. Uh, he's not mentioned in the Bible, but his son is mentioned in the Bible, Belshazzar, right? During the time of Daniel. Um, and so uh, that's about their time of their end as a nation, Edom. Uh, like also we read um, 
against Moab that the invaders describe as a bird of prey, the eagle soaring high above it, spreading its wings um, with precision, attacking its prey. And um, finally, in verse 22, the last verse of this section, um, Basra is mentioned, again, the capital city. Uh, what we see here is fulfillment of prophecy that was given in Numbers chapter 24. Um, at this time, um, uh, Edom was overrun from people from the south. And, um, and that's what kind of pushed them into Idumea, that area south in the southern part of Judah that I mentioned at the beginning of this section. So that was kind of a, an overview of Edom. They were pushed into southern uh, Judah eventually, became the area known of, as Idumea. And by the way, uh, there, you know of at least one famous or rather infamous Idumean. Herod the Great was Idumean. Um, actually, his reign um, fulfills prophecy of itself. Uh, the later on, the Edomites, you know, the Idumeans, uh, they were conquered by the Maccabeans and they were forced to become Jews. That's probably how, um, partly how Herod the Great was looked upon by Caesar as, you know, you would, you're going to do. You'll work. Well, God would judge Edom for their deceptions. He would judge Edom for their false dealings with, with Israel, with Judah. But he also judged them for the idolatry, their pagan idolatry. Um, even though you don't really find mention of the names of Edom's false gods, you do see mention of that they, they had their own gods. So God judged them for it. All right, let's move on to judgment on Damascus. Um, this is the shortest of the oracles against the nations here concerning Damascus and the area of Syria. Uh, so verses 23 through 27. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become fetal, feeble. She turned to flee, and panic seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as a woman in labor. I'm telling you, there's something there. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore, her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. All right. Um, so this, you know, this is judgment on the, really, it says Damascus, it's in the area of Syria that's being judged here. Um, Hamath and, and Arpad uh, and Damascus, these are three Aramean city-states that were overrun uh, by the king of Assyria. Um, and so these, these city-states, they were also in the path that Nebuchadnezzar took when he chased down the Egyptians 
um, chased him down as, as far as he could before he had to be taken away after the Battle of Carchemish. Um, and so it could be that it was during that time that this prophecy, this judgment against Damascus was fulfilled. In verse 24, uh, the dread of Damascus is again, you know, described as a woman in labor. Uh, clearly, it seems to be a favorite way that Jeremiah liked to paint the picture of at least heightened anxiety. Um, and then we see in chapter 25 a rhetorical question. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? You know, this could be also understood as, you know, why did they not escape? Why did they not escape when they could? And leave a deserted city before their enemy. These attacks by the Babylonians that the Lord used as his instrument for judgment were swift, often described as we have seen so far as happening sudden in an unexpected way. Uh, ben Haddad mentioned in verse 27, uh, seems to have been the name, um, scholars believe, of a dynasty of Aramean kings. Um, ben Haddad, it means son of Haddad. It refers to uh, the storm god that the Arameans worshipped, um, equivalent to the Canaanites' uh, Baal. So, there is your brief, the brief prophecy that the Lord gave on Dam Damascus. Let's move on. Judgment on Kedar and Hazor. Again, another brief po po uh, poem. This is focused on the Arab tribes of Kedar and Hazor. Verses 28 through 33. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck down. Thus says the Lord, rise up, advance against Kedar, destroy the people of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall be taken, their curtains and all their gods, or rather, and all their goods. Their camels shall be led away from them, and men shall cry to them, terror on every side flee wander far away dwell in the depths O inhabitants of Hazor declares the Lord for Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has made a plan against you and formed a purpose against you rise up advanced against a nation at ease that dwells securely declares the Lord that has no gates no bars that dwells alone their camels shall become plunder, their herds of livestock a spoil. I will scatter to every wind those who cut the corners of their hair, and I will bring their calamity from every side of them, declares the Lord. Azor shall become a, a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. No man shall dwell there, dwell there. no man shall sojourn in her. Kedar, this city, uh, was well known in biblical times. Uh, it's the desert. It's the area of the desert to the east of Palestine. Um, it was inhabited by the Bedouin. Uh, they descended from Ishmael, okay, Isaac's uh, bro older brother. 
they lived in tents. Um, they lived in, of course, unwalled villages. And uh, they were pretty good at archery. They were skilled archers. Uh, they were shepherds. Um, and they were pretty proficient in maintaining some profitable trade links between themselves and the area of Phoenicia. So uh, they were, uh, again, nomadic, but prosperous in, in the way they, they decided to live their lives. Uh, well, if you go and look into extant literature, uh, Babylonian Chronicles, you can see that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated uh, Kedar and Hazor, these Arab tribes, in 599 B.C. Um, Kedar is uh, more easy to point down, but Hazor is a bit more difficult to identify. Um, there's no, it's not really a major city here to call out. Um, so this is more about an area where the de desert tribes were located and um, settled in their villages. So these desert tribes, they, they often would come in and raid the lands around them, the settled areas around them. Uh, they are seen acting against Israel in the book of Judges, chapter 6, these peoples of the east. Uh, and they were a repetitious sort of trouble for the Assyrians. Uh, they were problematic in that matter. And the same thing, they became a problem for the Babylonians as well. Uh, enough to a point where Nebuchadnezzar uh, mounted a very punishing expedition against them in November, December of 599 B.C. Uh, again, in their own chronicles, you can see that. Uh, that was a year before he came fiercely against Judah. Uh, so this may very well be the reference in the clause um, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would be attacking, as he's called out here. Um, Kedar is referred to as the peoples of the east, um, and that, that term is found in a variety of contexts in Scripture, uh, referring to really these several nomadic tribes um, in the desert area east of Aram, the northern part of Arabia. Um, you know, they would raid settlements as well. Um, they would sometimes group together and band with the Midianites and those wretched Amalekites and, uh, and do some invading. Again, Judges chapter 6 the, is where you can see that happen. Verse 30, they are warned to also dwell in the depths, so they are told to hunker down themselves. Uh, also in verse 30, um, we see that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is named as their attacker. Nowhere else in the oracles against the nations is Nebuchadnezzar explicitly named. Um, verse 30, uh, 31 uh, tips us off that these tribes uh, became overly confident in their isolated security, the fact that they could move around quickly. Uh, they thought themselves really exempt of um, being conquered by any action taken by Babylon because of the nature of the way they were scattered among their own little settlements. 
uh, and how quickly and easily they can move in the face of hostile forces. So they were self-confident because of these things. Uh, and um, they were lacking in apprehension, um, which eventually these, these events that we talked about happened to them and they were overthrown. Now they, they didn't make the, the adequate preparations as some of the other nations would, like we read Judah trying to, how can we prepare for this invader? They, they didn't bother with that. They were overconfident. They really didn't have a hope of a chance, however, to evade God. And so God brought judgment upon them as well. All right, I need to wrap this up quickly. We got one more oracle here, the judgment on Elam. Uh, this is the last judgment oracle here, and it's really a forgotten people um, is being called out and being judged by a sovereign God. This is why I gave you um, map 116 so you could see where Elam is located, uh, again, north of the Persian Gulf. Um, let's read these last verses, beginning in verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. And I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify, terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger, declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Elam was the most distant nation of these judged nations um, in, firm, in terms of distance from Judah. It represents kind of like the end of the world to them. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that there's um, any dealings, harsh dealings, hostile dealings that they had with Judah. Um, but, you know, it does, again, give you a picture of God's sovereign reach all the way out to the area of Elam. Well, the basic theme here is, you know, the realm of God and extends over all of the face of the earth as far as can be conceived, even that inconceivable. And it will be demonstrated by his judgment on all of those who act contrary to his will. Uh, Elam, for centuries, had been a, an influential kingdom uh, in, the, in this northwest corner of the Persian Gulf. Uh, they were bounded on the west by Babylonia, on the north by the Medes, on the east by the Persians. Uh, it was in 640 B.C. It was overrun by the Assyrians, and the capital of Elam, Susa, was attacked. Uh, with the collapse of the Assyrian power after um, uh, the Assyrian king's death, then a, a, another dynasty rose up in Elam, and then for a while they continued to rule until they basically were merged in with the, the Medo-Persians. 
Susa would become capital again. And we're, my family were walking through the book of Esther. You know, the king there, there in Susa. Well, Elam was known to the people of Judah. It's not like they didn't know they didn't, they, that they didn't, or it's like they didn't know that they existed. Um, some of the northern tribes of Israel were deported to Elam. Um, you can see that in Isaiah's prophecy. There is an ancient king, Chedorlaomer. That ring a bell? Uh, he was one of the four kings in Genesis 14 that went to battle against those five kings, uh, which included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, where, if you recall in that battle, Lot was taken captive. Um, then Abraham and his company would come and rescue Lot. Um, and so, even back there, we, we, we hear of Elam there. Well, in verse 34, we get a timing of the prophecy here. Um, that's the ninth year of Nebuchadnezzar's um, reign and describes a, a, that military campaign where uh, over a territory that really would be known as Elam. And then lastly, we see um, the Lord would offer a glimpse of mercy to them. Fortunes would be restored like it was for Egypt and Moan. Moab and Amnon. Notice that the Philistines and the Edomites didn't have their fortunes restored. Well, I, I definitely need to close up here. Um, you know, when God judges the nations, he announces hope for some, but not for all. You know, why does he show mercy to these and not to others? Uh, you know, it really reminds, reminds us of God's amazing grace. You know, God chose Jacob for mercy, but he didn't choose Esau. You know, we saw that two thieves were hung next to Christ, but only one of them uh, was convicted of his sin and humbled himself and was convinced to, to believe in Christ. You know, you could say that you know, this scenario would, could teach a person not to despair because God has grace for enemies. But on the other hand, it warns us not to presume upon his grace uh, because he will save those who he has set his love upon. So we should always, in the fear of God, humbly and earnestly seek his grace in all things.